You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. A group of members of the Knights of the Golden Circle and other groups formulate this wild plan that they will assassinate Abraham Lincoln on his way from Springfield to Washington, D.C., And they know that the only way to get to Washington, D.C. by rail is to go through Baltimore. Baltimore. Thursday, April 26, 1860. The Republican State Convention met today. There were about 30 present, and Montgomery Blair was chosen for president among the delegation. The members were then greeted on the outside by a large crowd who followed, hooting. Mr. Gunnison, a prominent abolitionist, was pursued by an immense mob, crying, Lynch him, hang him. There goes the spirit of John Brown. Gunnison took refuge in the Marine Bank. At two o'clock, a crowd had assembled in front of the hall, where the Republican convention was to meet. The police commissioners, with a large force of police, were on hand to preserve order, but the convention did not assemble. The owner of the building refused to permit it. The Republicans then had a private conference. It is not known where it is. Such was the politics in Baltimore in 1860. Baltimore was an industrialized city. It had over 120 steam-powered manufacturing establishments, 4,300 workers. Nearly 40% of the city was employed in these factories. Its population had doubled from 1840 to 1860, and that included a lot of German and Irish immigrants. And that made the city one of the foremost for organizing of know-nothing or Native American parties. Native-born residents who felt dispossessed flocked to the know-nothing movement. The connection between politics and and gangs at this time during the 1850s was associated. Baltimore was just full of all kinds of political clubs, gangs, secret societies, social clubs. There were a lot of volunteer militia groups that had kind of different political agendas. That is Josh Mensch, and we're going to talk to him. He is the author of The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill the 16th President and Why It Failed. We're going to talk to Josh about partisanship in the 1850s. It was a fascinating city to study, the history of it, and and there's a a lot of tension within the state, and um, uh, it it was just a a, a sort of a pressure cooker of a place at that time. One group was known as the Plug Uglies. They came about shortly after the creation of the Mount Vernon Hook and Ladder Company in Baltimore, the Baltimore Fire Department Volunteer Fire Company located in the neighborhood where there is a statue of George Washington, a very nice statue. They were the runners and the rowdies, and their hats were kind of plug hats that they wore. They associated with the know-nothings. In fact, they were the same people or people impressing the more gentlemanly members of the political club groups. And their influence on the street made them useful to politicians who wanted to control the polls. And in 1856, the know-nothing candidate, Millard Fillmore, wins the votes of Maryland, the only state that he wins in 1856. Here's how one book describes it. The American clubs regularly held torchlight processions or grand illuminations featuring floats, fireworks, effigies, banners, speeches, and songs. They also infiltrated opposition rallies, and they threw the crowd into disarray by jabbing bystanders with the easily concealed shoemaker's awl, similar to a short ice pick. So beloved was the lowly awl that shortly before the presidential election in 1859, the American clubs engaged blacksmith to forge them extra awls in mass and handed them out. Their banner, 
featured a figure of a man running, with another in pursuit, sticking him with an awl. At the polling places, the plug-ugly strapped awls to their knees, surrounded suspect voters, and awled them into retreat. Come up and vote. There is room for all, became one of the many election time chants, intended to amuse and intended to intimidate. It wasn't private the way you cast a ballot. You didn't have the Australian ballot that we use today that from the government that lists all the candidates nicely. To cast your ballot, you had to wait in line before passing through a gauntlet of partisans. And you had to drop a ballot that was distinctly marked so everyone could see it into a ballot box overseen by judges. Immigrants, they had to present their naturalization papers. If they were in the wrong ward, one controlled by the know-nothings, merely looking German in a Yankee ward, or trying to cast a Democratic ticket at a know-nothing polling place, brought a sound beating, or worse. And for all we know, these nefarious activities might have led to the demise of a great American writer. And I am, in talking about this, just pure speculation. But gangs didn't just get people not to vote from the other side. They also sought to multiply the vote in a particularly Baltimorean way called cooping. Few days before the election, they would roam the streets. And honest gentlemen, as well as unfortunate wretches, would be abducted by the gangs and transported into cellars or sheds, coops, as they might be called then, sometimes forced to drink large quantities of whiskey. They were invariably robbed and beaten before being transported to the polls in small groups to vote. But they weren't finished just once they voted once. They were put back into the coop and brought back later under a mustache or some type of disguise to vote again. One person recounted being forced to vote 16 times in different wards across the city. And we don't know what happened with Edgar Allan Poe, who died in the city of Baltimore. We do know from a note that was passed to an acquaintance of his that the last place that he was seen in a disoriented state in the street was right in front of one of these polling places, leading to speculation that perhaps... The writer Edgar Allan Poe was a victim of cooping. This is about one of three or four potential explanations for what happened, including one that he was simply sick. So the Know Nothing Party existed in in the North, and in many cases they blended in with the Republican Party or formed coalitions with the Republican Party. There were... No nothing candidates in Massachusetts, governor of Massachusetts. There were no nothing candidates in California. But in Maryland, the Republican Party was not viable, as we saw from the entrance of the no nothings into their rally. And so the mix of politics in the state was this mix of immigrants who might vote Democrat but were intimidated, a large number of freemen, of freed African Americans, former slaves. Some held and still held in slavery. You have to remember Frederick Douglass is a slave who escapes from Baltimore. He's not held in Georgia or South Carolina somewhere. Douglass is a slave in Baltimore. We don't really think of Maryland now as a southern state. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, um, Maryland was very much allied with the southern states. And the, at least the popular sentiment in the state was very much, it was a slave state, and it was very much in line with uh, the Southern point of view, you combine that with this history in the city of Baltimore of violence and gangs and kind of political upheaval, just a city that, that was just full of trouble. You combine the, the heated politics of the moment with the kind of tone and the tenor of the city, and, and you have a very combustible situation. So into this bed of fire, in 1861, when the Civil War starts, The 6th Massachusetts Militia departs from Boston, Massachusetts, arrives in New York, and then to Philadelphia, and heads to Baltimore. They anticipate that it's going to be a slow trench to the city. They know that there's an ordinance in Baltimore that prevents the construction of steam rail lines through the city. The only way to get to Washington, D.C. by rail is to go through Baltimore. It's the only link from the northern states to Washington, D.C., And not only do you have to pass through Baltimore, but 
in order to pass through Baltimore by rail, you have to you arrive in one station, you get out, you have to cross the city uh, to get to the other station that will take you to Washington D.C. So you essentially have two different rail stations, and they're not that far from each other, but it's enough that you have to walk down what is East Pratt Street. The unit's colonel, Edward Jones, says that tells the men that their passage through Baltimore would be resisted. Maybe it'll be a few toughs out there. So you'll be insulted, you'll be abused, perhaps assaulted, to which you must pay no attention whatsoever. March with your faces to the front and pay no attention to the mob, even if they throw stones, bricks, or other missiles. But if you are fired upon and any one of you is hit, your officers will order you to fire. Do not fire into any promiscuous crowds, but select any man who you see aiming at you and be sure to drop him. Indeed, as the regiment transfers between these stations, there's a mob of anti-war supporters, southern sympathizers, who attack the train cars and block the route. And then four companies, about 240 soldiers, get out of the cars and march in formation through the city. The mob continues harassing the soldiers. The soldiers continue marching, trying to face forward as they were instructed. Then the mob goes and attacks the rear with bricks, paving stones, and a few pistols. In response, fired upon, the soldiers fire into the mob. Beginning a giant brawl between the soldiers, the mob, and even the police get involved. Four soldiers and 12 civilians were killed in the riot. The soldiers get to Camden Station, and the police were able to block the crowd from further trouble. But the regiment had to leave behind a lot of its equipment, including uh, their marching band instruments. There's actually 36 wounded that have to be left behind in, in Baltimore and don't get to make make their way to Washington. Henry Needham, who is the corporal of this group and the first killed, is sometimes considered to be the first Union casualty of the war. Oh, he was killed by civilians in a technically Union state. A Courier and Ives lithograph calls it the Lexington of 1861, with a somewhat sympathetic picture, soldiers in blue firing upon men who are holding only, you know, a brick in their hand and trying desperately to fight. Courier and Ives, um, you know, the more examined, I mean, they are the stuff of Christmas carols and the like, but they do come out of a, a thorough examination with some pictures that are unfriendly to African-Americans, and a wee bit sympathetic to the Confederate cause in some of their um, lithographs. But uh, we'll talk a bit later um, about one. The soldiers do get to Washington, D.C., and they find ways to get Union troops through Annapolis to Washington. But in the meantime, a German-language newspaper is completely destroyed by the mob, and the owners of that newspaper are sent fleeing. One will never come back. The other will start the newspaper again when the city's under more Union control. General Benjamin Butler eventually arrives to the city, occupies Federal Hill, and between there and Fort McHenry, uh, Union soldiers actually occupy the city. Maryland does have a vote on secession. It is delayed by the governor, and the vote is moved from Annapolis, where he feels that he would lose that vote, and Maryland would actually become a secessionist state, and they move it to pro-Union Frederick, Maryland. You know, one of the unsung heroes from the, the Union point of view of that era is is the governor, Thomas H. Hicks, mm. because he was under, you know, in late 1860, early 1861, and in that period, uh, you know, when Lincoln had been elected but had not yet been inaugurated, uh, you know, the, the great secession winter, as they call it, when the when, uh, the southern states are kind of dropping like flies. There was a lot of pressure on him, given the public sentiment, to hold the vote immediately. And there's a very, very good chance, if not a, a almost definite chance, that the, that the state would have voted to secede uh, at that moment. And Hicks just refused to allow the vote to occur. And uh, he kind of held out and uh, and let things cool down and, and let wiser heads prevail. And, um, you know, had he not been so steadfast, uh, there's a good chance Maryland uh, would have been lost, and then the entire war would have been a different story because Maryland is so uh, critical uh, geographically. 
and Maryland votes overwhelmingly there to stay in the Union. But it's close. We're going to talk with Josh Mensch now a little bit about his book, which talks about Lincoln's inaugural trip, which was a little quicker than he had planned it to be, and uh, just generally about partisanship. We're talking to Josh Mensch. He is one of the co-authors of The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill the 16th President and Why It Failed. Hey, Josh, thanks for coming on the program. Delighted to be here. Thank you for uh, for having me. I mean, uh, let's see. So you have a co-author. Uh, yeah, I'm the co-author with uh, Brad Meltzer. Brad comes from a, a background writing novels, whereas I come from a background of, of doing documentaries about American history. So you sort of put those two things together. Now I've been writing these uh, nonfiction history books. People probably know, maybe not all, the story of, you know, Lincoln's arrival to the White House after being elected and a, a brief uh, train tour. But his actual entry into Washington was kind of in the middle of the night. And Yeah, so that's exactly, uh, you know, the subject of our of our book. And, you know, of course, everyone knows about uh, the eventual assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, one of the most you know, well-known stories in American history. But not so many Americans know about the original plot to uh, kill Abraham Lincoln before he was even inaugurated. Uh, and it occurred uh, during his trip from Springfield to Washington, D.C., this kind of extended whistle-stop train journey that he took uh, to the northern states. And uh, there was a plot to assassinate him that originated in Baltimore, and the plan was to try to kill him as he was traveling through the city of Baltimore, a band of pro-slavery a pro-Southern secessionist mm. who uh, despised Abraham Lincoln and who uh, were furious at the at the notion of a of an anti-slavery president. So much to unpack there. First of all, you know, we'll get into the the story. Of course, Let's see, 1856, Maryland is the I think the only state that goes for Millard Fillmore. The mayor, it seems like, is not a Lincoln fan. Oh, here's an interesting thing. Just reading up for this, and the state song of Maryland to this day still refers to uh, northerners uh, like myself as northern scum. (laughs) (laughs) And they're actually, even in the wake of all the events going on today, they're still stalling the bill to change the state song that's sung by a guy who left for Georgia because he was uh, supporting the Confederate cause and trying to urge uh, Maryland, my Maryland, to join with the Confederate cause. And uh... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Were the people that organized this thing, would you call them gang? Would you call them, were they related to like the firehouse, the political clubs? Or they? These folks were largely members of a secret society, a pro-slavery secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And this was a group that, you know, was around in the 1850s. And founded by this kind of charlatan, as many uh, sort of secret societies are. Uh, But his grandiose vision for this group was that they were part of a movement for the South to militarily conquer Mexico and other Southern countries so that slavery could be expanded into this, uh, what they called the Golden Circle that would envelop, uh, you know, that would begin with the United States, but then would envelop Cuba and, mm-hmm. and Mexico and Central America. And there were pockets of this organization all over the South and in the North too, uh, but primarily in the South. And Baltimore uh, had a very active chapter. And the, the folks who, who devised this plot to uh, assassinate Abraham Lincoln were members of this group. Now, the group itself, the leadership of the national organization was not behind this plot. These were just people who were part of the group in Mm. in Baltimore. But that kind of tells you what their politics were. I mean, this was a pro-slavery organization. The Knights of the Golden Circle 
had a very conspiratorial view of of, of the North and uh, of the Republican Party. They were very pro-slavery, pro-Southern. You know, John Wilkes Booth was a member, um, and it's a whole separate story. You know, while he was in Baltimore. So that's the kind of world these people came from. Now, in addition to their membership in that in that organization, they also belonged to other organizations. And the characters who came up with this plot were were just in the thick of it. Uh, uh, the leader was a member of uh, a, a, a captain of a volunteer militia group that very much had a kind of political bent to it, um, a secessionist bent to it, uh, as well as belonging to the Knights of the Golden Circle, socializing with some of the folks who were in, in the other groups you've mentioned. So kind of the fabric of the city that everyone's kind of plotting and scheming uh, and and uh, often violently <laughs> to achieve their goals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just all goes to the... The politics of the time, the question that I uh, probably one of the number one questions that I've gotten over the years of doing my history can beat up your politics is the age old. Are things more partisan now than they were in the past? That was almost a different question in 2006 than it was in 2011, than it was in 2015, than it is in 2020. But you don't stop getting the question, and I'm really increasingly thinking that the answer was there was no happy and perfect time, that there was always partisanship. Um, the presidency has great powers, and the federal government has great powers, and they're always aggressively contested. But particularly if you're going to make an argument that there were certain periods of good feelings, and even those periods weren't weren't as so as it seems. Certainly the, the, the pre-Civil War period was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that is an understatement. Uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was so fascinating while, you know, just delving deeply into this period just before the Civil War, the kind of mid to late 1850s into 1860 and early 61. Um, uh, for one thing, it was impossible not to think about the present day uh, of course, you know, everyone is saying how divided the country is now and, and how divisive politics is now. Uh, and there were so many parallels, um, of course, many differences, but so many parallels uh, between then and now. And in the end of at the end, you can't help but realize that, in fact, however divided we think uh, the country is today, it still probably cannot reach the levels of uh, of the 1850s, uh, right before the Civil War. I mean, it was just the country was so deeply, bitterly, angrily divided, and over things that, uh, as important as the many issues are that face the country today. I mean, the country was divided over the institution of slavery. What could be mm. more mm. momentous than that? What could be more profound, and what could be a graver issue? Um, yeah. So you can just imagine, I mean, we, the passions today, and there's a lot of passion, and there are a lot of inter, you know, important issues that, that folks get passionate about, but nothing that can compare to the bitter divide over an institution that affected so many people and uh, that, under which so many people suffered. And, and it went to the very core of, of the meaning of America. And you know, we talk a lot today about there being sort of two Americas or you know, the red states and the blue states, two sort of visions of what America is or should be. Well, wow, that was certainly the case in the 1850s when, you know, one part of the country had a vision of an America that included slavery uh, uh, as far as we, you know, as far as you could see in the future, mm -hmm. and another that uh, was resisting that idea. You bring up a really good point that I don't, I think people need to anchor their view of history on the golden circle. And the way I've seen it expressed is that, you know, in Lincoln, there's a Lincoln quote of this, that the, if the South gets its way, there'll be slavery, you know, all the way to the tip of South America. Stakes are really the West and the route to the West. Who was going to get it? The California gold and who was going to, who is going to lay claim to it or, or lay claim to the routes to get there. But more importantly, that it would a confederacy with cotton prices where they were, with the ability to bond out cotton and create a financial empire and finance things. And considering like a South not taken down by war, you've got movement downward. If they're independent, they're able to do act on their own. Uh, I had Sidney Blumenthal on two years ago. It was really poignant to me the way that he, what he found in, in a story about Lincoln that 
when Lincoln was in Kentucky and saw these young people who owned slaves and that they could just be a kind of layabout because they had the slaves and, the, and, and you know, the moral evil of slavery was there for him. But it was also this sense of, my God, what kind of country are we going to be if this type of system permits and that it's going to foster an aristocracy and not a uh, bootstrap type work ethic that he would have much preferred. But one of the other points that Blumenthal made that I think people need to think about is, um, two, that we were one country then. Like now we tend to think of it as, oh, the North and the South. And, and after the South lost, they lost, a, they, they gained back a lot of their prestige in Congress, certainly after some years, but they lost a lot of the oomph. Prior to that, they were contestants to the throne. It very well could have been, even absent a war, that and, and for many years, let's say during the Pierce presidency or the Buchanan presidency, the South was running a lot of national politics. Um, sorry for the long, uh, basically, uh, there you go. At the time, it's easy to look back and say, okay, well, it was the North versus the South, and the, you know, the, North, the South wanted slavery and the North didn't. That really wasn't even the case. It was really about these new territories that were coming into the country as states and who would control those territories. And, and, and there was a sense that slavery would either succeed or fail based on these new territories. And the stakes felt enormously high uh, for both sides. If, if, if for those who wanted slavery to continue, uh, for those who benefited economically from it, and, and for the South, it based its entire economy around it, it truly felt like they were, it was, it was such a, it was so close. The margins were so close that just getting one more territory felt like, you know, that was pro, that, that, uh, that was a slave territory that could become a slave state would make a huge difference in terms of the balance of power, uh, because it was so tightly contested. And, and it just, every little decision that was made politically felt momentous because, on, on both sides, there was this feeling that, that the balance could tip one way or the other, uh, and decisions that were made today could have massive uh, ramifications down the line. It, it takes really getting into it before you realize that the issue was not so much slavery or no slavery, because uh, Lincoln was not even at that time uh, arguing for the abolition of slavery. He was simply arguing that it should not spread, and that was kind of the northern, you know, mainstream Republican northern position. And yet that position was so divisive and was met with such fury from the South. Not so much abolition, but just the fact that slavery could not spread. You see in that the partisanness of the time, and you see it now. And uh, I'll avoid comparing anyone's issues to slavery, but just in general, you see how issues are framed now, like very exaggerated positions of your opponent are kind of cartoonized. And uh, they're going to take my guns away, you know, or, you know, uh, or conversely, they're going to they're going to take away women's rights and we're going to be like the Taliban. You know, the there may be truth to some of all of these things, <laughs> but definitely it's 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 a use of a uh, uh, extreme characterizations. Um, I talked to another. Um, he wrote a great book on uh, Charleston that I have in my archives. And one of the things he said is that when Lincoln was nominated. They wanted to get mad at him in the in the Charleston papers and kind of like um, cartoonize him and stuff like that. Nobody had a photograph. Nobody knew what the man looked like because he was so <laughs> new and they didn't know how to attack him. So certainly they said he was, well, he's certainly an abolitionist. Now he's nothing of the sort. They found a way to uh, attack all his speeches, attack all his positions in Charleston without getting any information on him whatsoever because they thought they were going to face, you know, Seward in that election. You know, uh, it is so easy now for everyone to think of, you know, Lincoln as being this this sort of great uniter and 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 you know the president that everyone loved and and is was so beloved and revered uh, and is so revered today. But boy, uh, when he at the time of his election, uh, he was the most divisive president potentially ever, uh, uh, and it was in fact his election specifically the election of Abraham Lincoln that led to the first states seceding. It wasn't any other event. It, this was before Fort Sumter. It was before there had been any, uh, you know, uh, of, of violence associated with civil war. It was just simply the fact that Abraham Lincoln was elected was enough to, to cause 
several states to secede, uh, and they just thought he was the you know the the, the coming of uh, of Satan basically. Um, even though, as you said, he wasn't an abolitionist, he did speak. He did say that slavery was wrong, and just having a president that said slavery was wrong uh, rang all the alarm bells, and uh, and that was enough to to to, to turn the, half the country against him and to really loathe him and despise him. Yeah, I mean, we still have the essence of that, again, never wanting to compare anybody's issues to slavery, because it's just a bad debate thing. It's it's like uh, Godwin's law, you know. But I do see the um, the slippery slope argument on both sides does sometimes have merit because your political opponent is looking. They may they may say that they're they're looking for some kind of step. But it is useful to at least test whether they're slippery sloping or not, right? And I think there, you know, on one hand, it was pretty clear. You know, Lincoln was coming as close as to saying, "I'll, I'll back a constitutional amendment to preserve slavery to like, you know, in the 19th century in the South if you don't expand it." But I think they rightly felt like people like Jefferson Davis wanted to sell their slaves out west and to make a fortune. And I think they felt that the institution might die as it, once it was confined. Um, you were talking about, yeah, Lincoln's position. I'm counting it, and there's at least eight viable political groups, and Lincoln, at best, has the support of, like, one of them, a uh, one little splinter of this giant. And um, uh, you have your radical Republicans, not one of—he's not one of them. You have your conservative Republicans, your 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 Blair, and you have obviously your Southerners. He's not one of them. You have your like border state Democrats, Unionists. He's not their favorite. They'd much rather someone else in there. Tammany Hall, your your Fernando Wood type Democrats. He's not one of them. His only group is this moderate Republican. You're kind of like New York Times and. 1860s New York Times crowd. <laughs> yeah. Um this very like little widget. I mean, he he <laughs> he just, you know, wins because the convention is in out west and it's a novelty and a, and enough people don't want Seward. Now your book is The Lincoln Conspiracy: The Secret Plot to Kill the 16th President and Why It Failed. I'm talking with Josh Mensch. Um Josh, if we can, let's get into as much as you want to tell. I mean, obviously you got a book, and listeners, you got to go out and buy his book to get the full story. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, it's so much of what we've talked about. This plot just hits everything. It, it, it encapsulates uh, the divisions in the country. It kept, encapsulates the, the kind of the fury and the rage. And it encapsulates this moment in time when, when you know, Abraham Lincoln, relatively unknown, uh, he is somehow able to kind of unify the, the, the Northern Republican Party behind him. And uh, he 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 wins the presidency within a few days of winning the election. South Carolina is is announcing its intention to secede. It does, it's not able to actually formally secede for another several weeks, but uh, it it passes a resolution uh, basically stating its intention, and that's what Abraham Lincoln was walking into. Got a little Irish pub. Got a little Irish pub. You know, I remember um, years ago going to Atlantic City, and if you went to the boardwalk, you'll see the fellow who was the proprietor of the Irish pub out there with a sandwich board, kind of um, letting people know that his pub was available. And so I've always felt that that's the best in salesmanship. I let you know that there is available a premium podcast. The extra podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Please sign up for it. All you have to do, you can go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and there's plenty of links there to sign up. You're going to get extra podcasts. I'll do about 20 a year of different types. Some are additional stories. Some are like what's left over from the legal pad from these podcasts. And others are larger parts of interviews that I've conducted but only used a part for the podcast. Uh, and then there's just some, uh, maybe some additional questions and answers. All of those great things. And pretty soon we're going to be examining uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1968, a year that's on so many people's minds now. 
So um, be sure to sign up for the extra pad, um, extra podcast. It can be as little as $2. You help me, you help the program, of course, and you also get stuff. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com He was relatively inexperienced in federal politics, um, and suddenly he's uh, about to be president during the most tumultuous, difficult time in American history. And within a few days, the state is, is announcing its intention to secede, and he is deluged with death threats, uh, far more than any president before. Um, and uh, some are, you know, direct threats from people saying, "We are going to kill you." mostly received by mail. Others are warnings from, you know, really credible people saying, I know of some people who are going to kill you, so you better be careful. I'm saying this as your friend, uh, you know, from from uh, high-placed Republicans uh, and other politicians who uh, who felt that his life would be in danger. And so that's the kind of environment he was walking into. And uh, because of his nature, he, he he didn't really take the threats particularly seriously at first. It just wasn't in his personality to think that people were out to get him. He was, you know, famously a kind of generous-hearted man. He, he approached life with, with humor and kind of uh, uh, generosity towards others. Uh, not that he didn't understand the, the depths of the issues, but uh, he just couldn't believe that people would try to kill him before he was president. Uh, he would sort of joke with his his, his friends. You know, I, I, why do they hate me now? I haven't done anything. Let me become president, and then I'll do things, and then they can all hate me. But uh, I, I haven't done anything yet. So he tended to downplay uh, these threats, but but uh, they were very real. And and in particular, uh, there were these groups around the Capitol, around around Baltimore, and around Washington D.C. that were just uh, kind of heating up. And 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 uh, as the secession movement was progressing, uh, between the time that Lincoln was elected and his inauguration, as the secession movement was gathering steam, just, there were a lot of actors who just felt that things were coming to a head and, and they had to do whatever they could to, you know, prevent Lincoln from, from getting in the white house and that if the South were, were to secede and, and, and to somehow, uh, prevail that the best way to make that happen would be to prevent Lincoln from ever being inaugurated. Uh, and so the group of, of such actors uh, formed in, in Baltimore, as we talked about, it was a sort of a secessionist hotbed, and uh, a group of, um, of members of the Knights of the Golden Circle and other groups uh, formulate this, you know, wild plan that uh, they will assassinate Abraham Lincoln on his way from Springfield to Washington D.C. And they know that the only way to get to Washington D.C. by rail is to go through. Baltimore. It's the only link uh, from the northern states to Washington, D.C. And not only do you have to pass through Baltimore, but uh, in order to pass through Baltimore by rail, you have to uh, you have to go to you, you. You arrive in one station, you get out, you have to cross the city. No matter what Lincoln and his entourage did, there was going to be a, a period of time where they are crossing through the public city streets. And um, and that was the moment when uh, these plotters decided they would uh, they would strike. So that's the kind of general outline uh, mm-hmm. of the plot. What happened was a private detective by the name of Alan Pinkerton uh, ends up sort of sniffing out the plot because he had been hired by um, a railroad president uh, who was worried about his railroad tracks being sabotaged. And so while Alan Pinkerton, the private detective, is investigating these plots to sabotage railroad tracks in Maryland, he learns that there's actually a plot afoot to uh, kill Abraham Lincoln, you know, part of this kind of uh, secessionist movement going on in Baltimore. Uh, That's kind of the the nuts and bolts of it. We just sort of follow this incredible time when when Lincoln is about to assume the presidency. The country is splitting apart. He's heading to Washington, D.C., no one knows what's going to happen. Uh, there's enormous tension, enormous political tension. There are sort of rumblings of war, at least potential war. And he's about to, uh, you know, he's writing his inaugural speech as he's traveling. And uh, that's when all of this happens at this kind of incredibly fraught, rich moment in history 
when uh, the country is about to split apart. You know, he has a, a fairly successful train trip over and makes some stops. And uh, I know that um, and in Philadelphia, there's a nice photo of him with this huge crowd, you know, in front of uh, Independence Hall and all of that. Right before that, he stops across the river in Trenton. Now, my home state of New Jersey is not a friendly place to Lincoln. They're not going to vote for him in four years. That's how friendly they are. And there's pockets of them. I know uh, in the northern part of the state, uh, some of the uh, Dutch areas, you know, where 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 pretty supportive of at least at least anti-war, if not pro-Confederate. The city of Newark was a complete copperhead uh, city. They made steel for. There's still Newark steel um, stoves and things like that in Atlanta, uh, in the Atlanta underground. There's a, there's a big connection. Uh, they were no one wanted to go to war with their customers. So there's a lot of and then and they split their electoral vote. So his speech to the New Jersey legislature almost seems like a man on on his back heels. Not everybody here is my friend and that kind of. Um, so, but in other you know in other parts he's 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 more welcomed, of course. He does make it, and so the so I know that uh, we have an inauguration, um, and uh, Buchanan rides with them in the in the carriage, and there's a crowd just like in any other day. But people were really worried. I know on that day, there's a couple diaries where people think there would be violence or something like that that might have happened. Oh, sure, yeah. There was you know there was a lot of concern, and uh, you know one of the things we get into in the book is that in addition to this sort of specific plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln that originates in, in Baltimore, there were a lot of rumors uh, and plots and half-formed plots and, uh, and, and concern about attempts, uh, you know, to sort of uh, attack the Capitol uh, before the inauguration, that, that uh, Southern sort of pro-secessionists were going to storm Washington, D.C. Uh, and of course, there were uh, a lot of folks in Washington, D.C. who are, you know, more on the Southern side. So there were, there were, Genuine, there was genuine concern of violence in Washington D.C. in the weeks before Lincoln's election, and you know one of the one of the worries was that uh, was that there would be violence uh, in the capital city, kind of as Lincoln was arriving, or that you know some violent effort to prevent Lincoln from ever being able to uh, deliver his inaugural speech. Uh, and you know there were a lot of theories or, or, or uh, rumors about what that might be. Uh, whether it was some kind of uh, sort of coup or <laughs> attempt mm-hmm. to take over the Capitol building or an, uh, an attempt on Lincoln uh, after he had arrived in, in Washington, D.C. So it was really a, a time when people were very scared. And and, and not just these weren't just conspiracy theories. Uh, Seward himself uh, wrote Lincoln several letters uh, warning him uh, and uh, about the uh, environment in Washington D.C. and that his life would be in danger, and he suggested to Lincoln that that Lincoln uh, come in secret a few weeks before the inauguration, you know, much sooner than uh, he had publicly stated, so that he could kind of sneak into the city a couple weeks early uh, and, and and barricade himself uh, so that he would avoid any any danger uh, on the way or avoid any um, any kind of Violent insurrection um, in Washington D.C. while he was en route. So, uh, you know, if, if William Seward is 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 afraid that the city could be taken over, uh, you know, that that really says something because he knew the city as well as anyone. It's almost impossible to uh, understate uh, what a tense moment this was, uh, and and just this feeling that no one knew what was going to happen, and uh, and no one knew what uh, you know what. Uh, Lincoln assuming the presidency, what kind of impact it would have, and what would happen next. Uh, so it was it was a scary scary time. Yeah, I think that we're always um, thinking about North versus South, right? And we're always thinking about like the perhaps the uh, uh, New Englanders and the Southern fire eaters of Charleston, or you know things like that. And those people, you can kind of account for their action. But I think there's a lot in the middle, and there's a lot in the middle in the South too that people forget. I was reminding people in a um, in a debate, you know, Lincoln gets, it's not a lot, but he gets 1,500 votes in 
Virginia. They put up a uh, Liberty Pole near Fairfax. Of course, it gets taken down and the militia's called out because of it. Uh, but he simply was not on the ballot everywhere, which certainly uh, in, in most southern states, there, he wouldn't be printed on any ballot, nor would distributing a ballot with someone like Lincoln on it might be considered uh, something you certainly in Charleston, you would be locked up for. Um, you'd be dealt with in, in a lot of parts of the South. So it wasn't a fair, you know, election in that way. But he likely did have the support in mind of a lot of people. The John Bell votes tell you a story. Um, Bell's Constitutional Union Party is a kind of in-between where they're looking to reconcile, but they're not the uh, fire eaters either. You know, they're looking to hold the Union together. They win uh, Virginia, they win Kentucky, they win... Tennessee, and they get votes all over the South for the bell tick, and then some in the North as well. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. So it, there's a lot of opinion there, but you almost think about that middle person. You got some people that were, you know, would you say secesh? And then you had people who just kind of your average worker in Washington, D.C. doing a government job. And I don't think it was clear that if it came to blows, you know, if an, if a militia came from Virginia to capture Lincoln, let's say, or something like that, you know, who would who would really stand? And there certainly was a you know, being that D.C. is in the middle of the South, really, uh, the, the numbers would certainly initially favor the South. And uh, so very scary situation and really scary. It certainly was. And, you know, uh, we were talking about some parallels to today and what you were just saying sort of reminded me of one, which is, you know, that there were opinions all over the map and a lot of folks who were in the middle of, of these extremes of the sort of extreme positions. Um you know, who were maybe sort of looking for a home <laughs> politically yeah. uh, or, or trying to, to sort of stake out a middle ground. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting to read about, um, uh, you know, from people commenting at the time was the way that the extremes could kind of suck up all the oxygen and and that moderate voices would just get sort of drowned out in the maelstrom. And, and especially in the South, once the the kind of movement to secede began picking up steam. It had this gravitational pull, uh, and and the kind of sensible uh, moderates in the South, uh, just they they their voices just started to get drowned out uh, by the the kind of the rage and the vitriol. And and you know that is a, a parallel to today, where um, in this particular era, uh, moderate voices just kind of get lost uh, because. Um. There's such fury on 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 these sort of these two divided camps, and people just kind of are forced into one camp or the other, and uh, and those are you know the, the the most extreme voices become the loudest, and um, and the people in the middle uh, end up sort of rooting around trying to find a place, uh, but uh, the the sort of binary schism develops that that overwhelms everything else. Uh, Certainly not on the South. I think in the North, it was always a, it remained more complicated in terms of, of motives for, for, you know, the war and for supporting the Union. Um, there were a lot of interesting comments from um, the sort of more moderate uh, 
Southern elected officials who who were trying to keep the union together and who were trying to negotiate. Uh, and and they just kept saying, like, help me here. We're getting drowned out. Like the momentum is against mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're, we're going to get sucked into this thing uh, and it's going to become us against them. And, and then it's all over. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you see a lot of parallels to that today and also a lot of a lot more clearer divisions. Divisions were always there even within the parties. You had your like conservative Democrats and you had your uh, Aldamatos and Ernest Hollings, you know, and the Bo Weevils and Gypsy Moss in, in, in the parties in the <laughs> yeah, 80s. Yeah. But now you have, say, you're never Trumpers. You have your Trumpers. You have your um, you have your Joe Biden supporters. You have progressives who are like, don't you dare vote for Joe Biden. That's selling out your vote. You have Republicans who maybe had no position or even supported Trump but maybe don't like some of the recent things. You have those that are very much forum there's really this real uh, you know i'd use the term richness if i felt it was a positive trait but <laughs> there's a there's a there's a wide range of things going on right now and you can see it then that that thing that 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 you commented there that don't we're going to we're going to be in the undertow here virginia does not secede until after after lincoln's president i, I don't think that's often something people just commonly know they just think of like here's the states that were gray but Virginia wasn't going to listen to South Carolina, those crazy fire eaters of Charleston, printing all that stuff in their newspaper. What are they? And eventually it turned. They even sent. Uh, yeah, it was only about, you know, was it about five months later, maybe from, from South Carolina, four or five months. About that. And, the, you know, the first um, the first uh, open question whether Lincoln could have done anything. I think it's worth examination. I don't think it's as clear cut. As we think, you know, is him calling. He did two things. He called out U.S. troops to put down the rebellion. Now, we could say, especially nowadays, like there's nothing else he could have done. But there's probably some steps that are even more moderate than the moderate Lincoln did. He wouldn't allow any state to be neutral. He said he can't be neutral in the United States. So Lincoln, while we he is a moderate, you know, some of his positions are very hard. Like he would not give up slavery in the territories. We know why. He felt very strongly that would be giving up what he won in the election. Being moderate doesn't mean he he had no he had no uh, lines in the sand. He certainly did. The other thing was no state could be neutral. This applied to Kentucky, who wanted to be neutral. This applied to Virginia. Every state had to actually show active support for the Union or he was going to send troops there. He held off a little bit knowing the politics of his home state of Kentucky. Perhaps he should have used a little more there. When he assigned a quota to Virginia that they it was not only are we going to march troops through your state, which they knew, but also assigned a quota. I think those two things were made it very hard for the Unionists in Virginia. And obviously, West Virginia separated, so there was a strong union element in that end. Don't forget about my fifteen hundred folks there in 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 uh, in Virginia that voted for Lincoln. Uh, they should not and 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 there were Lincoln delegates to the there were Virginia delegates to the eighteen sixty Republican convention. I don't I don't think they were able to come back in sixty four. No, another ramble. I now I forget where we are. Yeah, and you know one one interesting thought is sort of thought experiment is when you look at how credibly divisive. Uh, you know, and incredibly divided the country was in, in the late 1850s and 1860, right before the Civil War. And, you know, again, comparing it to today, you know, one interesting difference is that that Lincoln, you know, you, you mentioned his his kind of line in the sand and that he, he was a moderate, who, who but who had a kind of a, a firm backbone on a certain uh, on a, a few key issues that really mattered. But in terms of his tone, um, you know, one difference to today is that Lincoln's tone was generally so kind of, um, you know, really conciliatory. Uh, mm-hmm. He never he never engaged in kind of name calling, at least not in those early days. And mm-hmm. he really was trying. He wanted to hold the country together. Uh, he wanted he, he had a kind of potentially naive belief that if he just sort of appealed to everyone's good nature and, and patriotism that, you know, we could resolve these differences. And, and he resisted the temptation to, you know, to kind of uh, belittle or, or insult uh, his opponents, uh, certainly not in public speeches. And of course, that is something that is very different uh, from, you know, uh, certain politicians today who, who, uh, who do the opposite, which is accentuate the differences and, and, 
sort of stoke the passions. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, I guess my point is that even a, a, a president as in many ways kind of mild mannered uh, and, 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 and conciliatory uh, as Lincoln could not overcome uh, the differences and, and the genuine divide in the country uh, that, you know, kind words ultimately were not enough. Um, no, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, compared with a Senate that was coming in, that was going to be uh, northern dominated, you know, Kansas having flipped um, California up until up until, you know, it's free state. They had some pretty sympathetic southern senators. Um, I think this is after Broderick's duel and he's killed. So you're getting another southern southern center in California. But I think they had enough votes by the time he's getting in. Certainly they have the House. Um, they're not going to get much from the federal government. So you see all that happen. Um, yeah, certainly a uh, – uh, well, of course, and, and that was the other fear, uh, you know, uh, in the South was that even 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 if Lincoln is not an abolitionist or is mm-hmm. saying he's not an abolitionist, mm-hmm. that once he's the president, uh, that he will be a kind of a, you know, just a puppet uh, because, you know, he wasn't very well known. And he was initially perceived to be kind of weak and inexperienced and not very uh, seasoned and, and perhaps, you know, uh, a little naive that uh, the Northern Congress would kind of manhandle him. And so Southerners didn't trust that Lincoln would really necessarily stand up to to those in the North who, who were genuine abolitionists. So even if they, they thought Lincoln might be harmless, they still didn't trust the pol- the larger politics. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and yeah. the numbers in the North. I just can't help but thinking, if this plot succeeds, they get Hannibal Hamlin. Now, I, I have to <laughs> right. tell people, because he's not well known, but I also do a vice president's podcast, and I and the way I tell people, if they the quickest way to, to understand, I think, who Hannibal Hamlin really was, is he was more Hannibal than he was Hamlin. He was a big guy who, who was um, very well-dressed, very good speaker. Lincoln saw him speak, was real impressed, never, you know, um, didn't have a lot of contact with him. He was a real... Uh, Maybe not abolitionist is too strong, but certainly much more radical than uh, Lincoln. I never uh, shrank from a debate, and uh, they would have put him in office and probably more safely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just, of course one of those counterfactuals. Like, what? How could we? How would American history be different had this plot succeeded and had had these uh, assassins? gotten to Lincoln and, and taken his life before his inauguration, what what direction does that spin the country in? And it's, of course, impossible to ever know, but certainly interesting to to speculate a little. Um, and, you know, what, what was truly unique about Lincoln and what wasn't and, and, and what was, how would Hamlin or someone else have been different? It's, it's, it's impossible to know, but a, a fascinating question, certainly. Yeah, you know, that's always a problem with counterfactuals because I'm only changing one thing. And um, it's like, you know, uh, it's like there should be a referee that says no illegal maneuver because um, obviously there's many things that would change. One would be that you would possibly lose a lot of support of the Illinois and, and, and Indiana Republicans in the western side of Hamlin's president or because Lincoln would be martyred. The the, the war cause is, is enhanced that much. Who who really – yeah, you're absolutely right. Who really knows? Um, does – Besides what we talked about today, is there anything else that really people should know? Well, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, as I said, uh, it was just impossible while researching this story not to think about today and, and, and all the parallels. And um, it was it was you just felt like it was it was germane to the material that that some things have changed and some things have not changed. And. And this this idea that there are often two Americas and and two different visions uh, of the country and that it causes a lot of tension and a lot of friction um, and and anger and hatred uh, it's not new uh, it's been that's a long time and um, you know uh, of course uh, uh, in the 1850s and 1860s it, it it turned into the bloodiest war in, in the history of the country. Uh, no one wants that again, but uh, it, it is helpful to to study the past and and to and to see the patterns and and try to avoid the same mistakes, uh, but also take some solace in that, however uh, kind of um, 
uh, bitterly divided the country may seem now that it, it's still we still have a ways to go before we're at the level uh, uh, where the country was in, uh, you know, before the Civil War. That's the way I see it. Yeah, that's the absolute way I see it. When people fear the partisanism or we're getting so partisan. Well, you know, um, there's a real treasure you know, don't don't think that somebody isn't up for a job when they're running for office. I mean, and that or for the ability to make laws like that's a real thing. And everybody has a right to contest to get their vision. You know, that's the thing I think people do sort of forget. And there's like always like one good side and one bad side, because if you're you're that's the way politics are. But uh, to, yeah, it's like a, this terrible thing of, of partisanship now, name calling, fighting, pulling out pistols in the in the house, yeah, yeah, I think we can absolute bad time. Well, uh, <laughs> the book is The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill the 16th President and Why It Failed. The author, one of the co-authors, is Josh Mensch, and he joined us today. Josh, thanks very much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking. You know, there's a Courier and Ives print from 1864 that shows, on one hand, Jefferson Davis saying, you know, the South must be free. And on the other hand is Lincoln saying all the slaves must be free. And in the middle is George McClellan, um, you know, who, although he's a short figure in person in this graphic by Courier and Ives is is quite large and is holding the two men apart and saying the union must be preserved and Courier and Ives is a little bit more biased than you know we might uh, have the positive view that we have of them and there's certainly some some very uh, stereotype lithographs that they did during their time and sold a lot of them made a lot of their profit from um, ridiculing African Americans and things like that, so something to look into. But um, in this case, I pointed out to sh demonstrate how the opinion was that, uh, just like Josh and I are talking about here, uh, it's not necessarily the case that uh, everybody loves Lincoln during his time. In fact, you could put his politics right there. He's kind of seen on one side of politics and a lot of opinion is in that middle now he wins re-election a lot of that is union soldiers but you know so the whole of the people vote for him at least in the, in the north in the country a lot of the soldier vote is really what keeps lincoln in there a very smart strategic move to bring andy johnson on the ticket and to appeal as a union party after a disastrous midterm in the 1862, where Republicans tried to go it alone and building coalition with Democrats, he wins a victory in 1864. But it's touch and go there. And there's a lot of support for McClellan, too. The business that we know as Courier and Ives is actually that of the Pendleton brothers who brought their presses, artists, and craftsmen from Europe in 1824. They had a knack for publishing prints in newspapers or to do commercial or job to draw products that could be produced then as lithographs. Um, at the age of 15, Nathaniel Courier became their first apprentice and learned enough to take over the business. It's in 1852 that James Merritt Ives joins Courier as a bookkeeper and eventually becomes a partner. Hundreds of craftspeople work for Courier and Ives between 1850 and 1880, grinding stones, printing, coloring, and as well as selling and supplying the images to various newspapers. But they were mass producers, and that's why they're so famous today. They would not make an image unless they felt it could sell at least 100 impressions. Unfortunately, one of their more profitable series was the Darktown series, which featured negative stereotypes about African-Americans in the post-Civil War period and reduced them to buffoonish cartoon characters. I want to thank Josh Mensch, uh, and please, 
you know, check out his book, The Secret Plot to Kill the 16th President and Why It Failed, along with Brad Metzler. And uh, we thank him for coming on. Remember uh, that you can sign up for the extra podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It can be as little as $2 a month. If you like the program, another way you can help greatly, tell people about the program. That is how the podcast has grown. I want to thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.